Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. I have an announcement. I think I've made, I've announced this once before, but I'm really excited about this. And that is the Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God online class that will occur the five Mondays in May. So it begins a week from tomorrow. Is that right? I think that is right. And so for five Monday evenings, we're going to have this online interactive class. It's going to be, well, the live portion will be 8 to 9.30 p.m., Central time. I know I've had some, I've had some of our East Coast friends say, that's so late. That's why I said, I said how, do you, how do you watch Monday night football? They said, we fall asleep at halftime. I said, well, okay. It's just the best we can do, you know, for, the, for North America anyway, to try to hit everybody. And, uh, but the thing is, you get registered and the recordings are available, so you don't have to watch it live. You can watch it when you're awake. <laughs> and I'm really excited about it. What we're going to do is we're going to really... Ask these questions and try to arrive at some good, solid theological answer. If God is a God of love, what about the wrath of God, Old Testament violence, the violence of the cross? What about hell? What about the book of Revelation? So those are our five topics for those five Mondays in May. And if you want to be a part of that, you need to get registered because it's an online event. So you have to register and you can register for a, a donation of any amount. So you, you, can, you can register for $1,000. You can register for $1. You know, whatever you can do and feel like, that's, that's how that works. We already have several hundred that have registered, but uh, it's coming up, so I want to remind you of that. Excited about that. All right. Uh, as has been mentioned already today, we're still in Easter tide. This Easter season, and this is the third Sunday of Eastertide. And on the third Sunday of Eastertide, I'm going to look at the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Now this is clearly an ending to John's gospel. It's the original ending. I mean, originally, John concluded his gospel by saying that through believing you may have life in his name. Amen. But later, for maybe a couple of reasons that we will examine, John felt the need to add another chapter. And I am so glad he did. For what we have in the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John is a lovely coda. John 21. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself 
in this way. The disciples have returned from Jerusalem and come back home to Galilee. Jesus is raised from the dead. They've seen Jesus. Peter knows that Jesus is raised from the dead. He's seen him. And yet, Peter is stuck in uncertainty. He doesn't know where he stands. Yeah, Jesus is raised from the dead. That's fantastic. But Peter doesn't know where he stands because after all, he actually denied Jesus three times. Jesus had said something about using Peter to build his church. But can you use somebody that has denied the Lord to build a church. So Peter is very uncertain about where he stands. They're just there back home in Galilee. And one evening, Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now, there's a lot in that. Does he mean I'm going to go fishing just to kind of while away the time? Or does he mean I'm going back to fishing? understand Peter was not a recreational fisherman. This was his vocation before Jesus. What he did before becoming a disciple of Jesus was he was a commercial fisherman. Now he doesn't know. Am I an apostle or am I a fisherman? And one evening he says, I'm going fishing. And I think it probably does imply I'm going back to fishing. Perhaps. I don't know. There were six other disciples. Hey, we'll go with you. And so maybe for the first time in three years, Peter's back to fishing. Those seven disciples go out by night onto the Sea of Galilee to ply their trade as fishermen. And that night they catch nothing. Well, that's that's the answer to your question there, Peter. (laughs) Nope, you're not going back to fishing. All your luck as a fisherman has run out. That is not going to be your future. And so they fish all night to catch nothing because that's not to be Peter's future. And now it's beginning to get light. The new day is dawning. And there appears on the beach a stranger. I say a stranger. Yes, a stranger. It's not recognized by appearance. This this is a stranger on the beach. He's the same stranger, though, that walked with those two disciples on the Emmaus Road. It's the same stranger that Mary Magdalene met as the gardener. Now this stranger is on the shore early in the morning going, hey, guys. You haven't got any fish, have you? No, we have not. Cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will catch some. And so they cast the net to the right side of the boat. All night they'd caught nothing and now they've, well, their net is full. Their net is absolutely full. It's the disciple whom Jesus loved that discerned what was going on. And he says, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. 
The beloved disciple doesn't recognize the stranger by appearance, but by what he does. It's the Lord. And when Peter hears him say, it's the Lord, Peter dives in. One of the church fathers says, Peter dove into the sea because he was diving for the pearl of great price. <laughs> That's the way those church fathers were there like that. And Peter swims ashore. He's, he's not even waiting on the boat. Oh, you got to love Peter. Peter, he's always impetuous for good or bad. He's just going to jump right in and this time literally just dives in. Swims the shore. And the stranger, who by now we know who he is, not by appearance, but by what he's doing. The stranger has prepared breakfast for everybody. Isn't that great? Isn't it great when, when, when somebody prepares breakfast for everybody? Jesus has prepared breakfast. There's, there's bread and there's fish and it's being prepared over a charcoal fire. Uh-oh. Charcoal fire. You say, what's wrong with that? It's a perfectly good way to prepare your breakfast. I know. But you know, charcoal fire, that very specific phrase, charcoal fire, it only occurs twice in the Bible. Both of them in the Gospel of John. Here in John 21, and then a little bit earlier, back in John chapter 18, verse 18. Now the servants and the police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing around it and warming themselves. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Well, this first charcoal fire was the charcoal fire in the courtyard of Caiaphas. Where Peter, standing there warming himself, says, I, I, I don't know him. No, I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. I swear I don't know him. Cock-a-doodle-doo. <laughs> Jesus has... Recreated the crime scene. And Peter, I know he sees that charcoal fire. It's like, oh, brother, this is uncomfortable. Jesus breaks the tension. He says, bring the fish you caught. Go get the fish. And Peter goes and he, he drags. It's Peter that does it. He drags this net full of fish up onto the shore. Now this, this is a picture of what Peter's future is going to be, you understand. He's going to be the apostle who throws the gospel net into the sea of humanity and has a great catch. He's, he's dragging this net. By the way, that's that same word, dra drag, that's that same word that John uses in John 12, 32, when Jesus says, if I'm lifted up, I will drag, I will draw, but it's that I will drag all people to myself. And Peter is going to be a part of that dragging people to Jesus. So he drags that. And the other miracle is the net doesn't break. The gospel net doesn't break. He drags that up. 
How many fish were there? 153. Well, isn't that great? All fans of 153 here. That's my favorite number. For years, I've just wondered. I, people always, I, I preach on this. What's that 153, Pastor? Well, St. Jerome, you know, one of the early Bible scholars, church father, uh, he said, he said, well, there were 153 species of fish. And so it represents that Jesus is going to catch every kind of person. Okay, cool. But then St. Augustine, kind of his peer, his contemporary, you got to know Augustine anyway. <laughs> Augustine says, no, no, here's what it means. It's 10, which represents the law, plus seven, which represents the Holy Spirit, and that's 17. And if you add 17 serially, that is one plus two plus three plus four, all the way up to 17, you get 153. To which I said, oh. Okay. So what does 153 mean? I don't know. Still don't know. I'm sure somebody will tell me after church. I don't know. So they have breakfast. I think for Peter anyway, it's uncomfortable. We're told that these disciples, none of them said, who are you? They knew it was the Lord, which means they didn't recognize him by sight as the Lord, but of course by these miracles and what he's doing and the way he breaks the bread and gives them to, he serves them the bread and the fish. It's a Eucharistic moment. But I think it's uncomfortable for Peter. You know it is. Because that dang charcoal fire. Finally, Jesus says, Simon, son of Jonah. He doesn't call him. Remember, Peter gets his name Peter from Jesus. His name was Simon, son of Jonah. Simon Jonason. But Jesus said, I'm going to change your name because of the confession you've made that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm going to change your name to Peter, to, to, to Petros, to Rocky, because on this rock, this Petra, I'm going to build my church. You're going to be a part of it. And the gates of hell will not prevail against. I'm going to call you Peter. I am calling Peter. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? More than, what are these? I don't know. Is it these, this world? Or do you love me more than these disciples? Because Peter had, you remember he had said, Jesus had foretold that they would all forsake him. And Peter said, well, you know, these clowns, they probably will. But not me. I'm the rock, you know. I'm solid as a rock. You said so yourself. I'm the rock. You can count on me. I'm ready to go to prison with you. I'm ready to die with you. I will not. And Jesus said, oh, really? Before the cock crows three times, buddy. All that's in the background. 
Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? (sighs) Yes, Lord. I love you. Then feed my lambs. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then tend my sheep. Now you understand it has to be three times, don't you? A third time, Jesus says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you cherish me? He uses a different word. Do you cherish me? Oh, and this really hits Simon, Jonas, and hard. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I cherish you. Jesus, yes. Feed my sheep and follow me. This is, uh, this is perhaps one of the two reasons why John gives us this lovely coda is he wants to reaffirm the primacy of Peter's leadership in the church. Because, you know, there are people would say, you know, Peter's like one of the main leaders of the church, and yet he denied the Lord three times. So John wants to affirm the primacy of Peter's leadership in the church. I think that's part of what's going on. In fact, on the Sea of Galilee... The the site that commemorates these events we're talking about today, there's a church there, very beautiful church, and it's called Peter's Primacy. Peter's Primacy. Because here is where the primacy of the leadership, the apostolic leadership of Peter is reaffirmed by Jesus as he restores him in a threefold confession. I love you. I love you. Yes, I cherish you. All right. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, follow me. And then Jesus, well, he says this to Peter. He said, Peter, I know how you are. I know how you've been. I know how you lived your life. When you were young, you did what you wanted to do. And you just went wherever you wanted to go. You are the epitome of freedom. You do your thing, Peter. That's who you are. You're free. When you were young, you went wherever you wished to go. But when you're old, when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and they'll take you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. In other words, Jesus is gently, cryptically telling Peter, Peter, when you're old, you also will be crucified like me. Well, three decades would go by. More than 30 years and And Peter's out there apostolically throwing the gospel net into the sea of humanity and pulling in 153, whatever that means. 
Church tradition tells us that in the year 64, and church tradition also says that Peter was 64, Peter was crucified in Rome by the Emperor Nero. And the tradition tells us that Peter said, I'm not worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord, so do me a favor and crucify me upside down. That's Peter. Restored, faithful, crucified in Rome in the year 64. All right, let's go back, back to Galilee 30 years before those events. As Peter is restored by Jesus, by his kindness, by his grace, by his mercy. And now they go for a little walk. You know, just a little walk on the beach. Just, just now, this is now, this is a private conversation. Just Jesus and, just Jesus and Peter are walking along the beach of the shores of the Sea of Galilee and they're talking. What are they talking about? I don't know. It was a private conversation. But I think, if I were to guess, I think Jesus was talking to Peter a little bit more about his future, about what was to happen in his life. And at one point as they're walking and having this private conversation, Peter turns around and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loves, the beloved disciple he's following at a distance. And Peter says, well, what about him? And Jesus says, well, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? That's none of your business. Follow me. That's your job. You follow me. Learn something here. Jesus will talk to us and tell us about our own story. Not other people's. Be careful about assuming you know what other people should do with their lives. Yeah, yeah. Jesus isn't going to talk to you about other people's lives. He'll talk to you about, about your life. He says, well, don't worry about them. You follow me. That's your job. You follow me. I'll talk to you about your life. I'll tell you your story. You follow me. Don't worry about what other people do. John 21, verse 23. So the rumor spread in the community that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Well, this may be the second reason for this lovely coda. To dispel the rumor that this beloved disciple who then we come to identify as John the evangelist, John the beloved, John the elder, John the author of this gospel, would not die until the coming of the Lord. And that rumor is spreading. And John says, well, I need to set the record straight because that's not what he said. He just told Peter, if I want him to live until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So I think that's part of why <clears throat> this is here. Church tradition tells us that... Um, this John, John the Beloved, John the Evangelist, John the Elder, died in Ephesus around the year 100. And don't we love John? I mean, he was beloved by Jesus, he's beloved by us, right? 
the Gospel of John, those three epistles of John. Here's how he concludes his gospel for a second time. Verse 24. This is the disciple. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them. And we know that his testimony is true. But there are also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. A lovely coda indeed. If everything that Jesus has done were to be written down, why? The world itself could not contain the library. And that's what we, that's what we are. We together. You know what we are? We are a library of grace. We're a library of grace. Each one of us, each one of us is a book in the process of being written. Your life is a memoir that you and Jesus are writing. You and Jesus are the co-authors of your autobiography. My life by me and Jesus. That's true. Your life by you, written by you and Jesus. You write the drama. Jesus writes the resolution. Uh, you, you know about this, you know, literary theory, you know, to have a story, you have to have drama at some point, but then, you know, if you want it to work out, you have to have a resolution. You write the drama, Jesus writes the resolution. Or say it this way, you write yourself into trouble and then Jesus writes you out of it. <laughs> you write your story into trouble and then Jesus comes along and writes you out of it. Sometimes the best thing we can do is to stop trying to write our story all by ourselves. Because we, we just write ourselves into trouble. We're writing the story of our life and at some point you need to go, oh, I'm making a mess of it. Jesus, please. Take the pen. Just take the pen. I need a hero in this story, and I've pretty much figured out it's not going to be me. Write the resolution. Write the redemption. Write the solution. Write me out of trouble. Jesus, be the hero of my story. Here's the pen. Be the hero of my story. The lovely coda of John's gospel reminds us that it's Jesus who is the hero. Not Peter, not Paul, not James, not John. It's Jesus. Without the grace of Jesus, Peter's story ends with him as a failed disciple. 
a failed apostle. Trying to be a fisherman again and failing at that. Without the grace of Jesus, Peter's story ends in failure. But because of Jesus, Peter's story ends with the grace of restoration and reaffirmation. No one who loves the way of grace ever comes to a bad end. So for the rest of his life, which was over three decades, for the rest of his life, every time Peter saw a charcoal fire, what did that remind him of? Did it remind him of that terrible night in the courtyard of Caiaphas when he denied Jesus three times? I don't think so. I think every time he saw a charcoal fire, it reminded him of that beautiful morning that he had breakfast with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. And so we thank God for the grace of happy endings and lovely codas. Amen. Stand up with me. Oh, look, Jesus has prepared breakfast for us. Ah, yes, Jesus is going to give us his life in the bread and in the wine and everybody's invited. Everybody, please come. Everybody will have a basket of bread. We'll say the body of Christ broken for you. It is. Take a piece of that bread. Someone else has a cup. They'll say the blood of Christ shed for you. It is. Take the bread, dip it in the cup and have breakfast with Jesus. But we're going to prepare ourselves first. And so let's begin by um, first confessing our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. I mean, just like Peter's forgiven. Peter's forgiven. How many of you, in one way or another, 
have denied your discipleship and not followed Jesus as you should and you've heard the cock crow. But do you love Jesus? Your sins are forgiven. In the name of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.